Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Line of Land Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai and all the ways that you might be watching on Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any one of our television apps. We thank you for making us a part of your Sabbath routine. Right now it's June 5th, and uh, we are excited uh, that our online Shavuot conference that we held last week was a uh, great success, and there's a lot of brethren that got to enjoy and celebrate that appointed time with us, even though we've been isolated in our homes. Um, many of the teachers that were able to share messages were encouraging and uplifting, and everyone uh, enjoyed being a part of that. Um, if you enjoyed that, we uh, appreciate your feedback and all the things that we do here. Um, now that Shavuot is over, we are now looking ahead to the uh, next events and the next uh, point of time that we uh, hold an event for, and that would be Sukkot, our um, large gathering in October where we have uh, many brethren come from all over to celebrate the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles with us. And as we are preparing for that, registration for that is open, of course, if you go to tabernaclesevent.com. We are uh, endeavoring to purchase assets to help to run that event. And so right now, if you go to llgive.com, you can see all the information on our event asset fundraiser. Uh, this is where we are endeavoring to uh, accumulate resources and own uh, different things that we use for that event as well as our other events um, rather than renting them each and every year um, we feel that we can be better stewards of the Lord's resources if we purchase them own them not have to rent them each year and that uh, some of the equipment that we own uh, can be a benefit to the brethren uh, that attend those events things like tents things like commercial grade kitchen equipment are some of the things we are looking to purchase this year um, so if you would if the Lord would stir in your heart Go to llgive.com and you can make a donation toward that so that we here at Lionel Land Ministries are working to be good stewards of the Lord's resources and accumulate these assets that help us to run our events. So if the Lord would stir in your heart, we greatly appreciate your donations toward that. Also, now that Shavuot is over as well, we are looking forward to Camp Yeshua, uh, which we'll be holding August 2nd through 7th, or that's our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. Because of uh, all the things going on in the world, we had to push back some of our deadlines, and so registration for Camp Yeshua is still open until July 1st. If you or your family would like to be a part of that, our youth camp, um, we're in need of more adult staff as well. If you would, please contact the ministry um, and get registered for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. We're looking forward to another incredible year uh, with all the kids that come from all over. They leave changed and, and different than the way they came in, and it's a life-changing experience for everyone who's a part of it, from the youth to the junior staff and the staff alike. Registration for that is still open if you go to CampYeshua.com and uh, you can see all the information there and you can register there as well. Please contact us if you're interested in being a staff member for that as well. Once again, we thank you for being a part of this ministry and in all the things that we do here at Lion and Lamb. Now let us set apart this Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Oh. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Chamotzi. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, for her, and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And, Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha ba'elimadonai. Micha mocha nedahar ba'chodesh. No ratechilot
Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher natan lanu et derech, HaYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom, b'nei Israel ot hit le'olam, keshashet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aret v'yom hashavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinan tam lavenecha, vadepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. One question, do you feel like there is no direction home? Are you lost and on your knees? Just begging, Father, please take me home. Take me home. Know that when you come in prayer, you will find the Father there. You're not alone. You're not alone. So Sickness and your shame 
be behind all your pain. Come on. your darkness do you need a little spark to start a fire are you searching for the one thing that you know is your soul's only desire on your knees come take a stand come and take the father's hand to find a home and come back and your pain be behind all your shame and come on There's 
Calm in 
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Beha'alotcha. Chapter 8 Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aharon and say to him, When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. Aharon therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers it was hammered work. According to the pattern which Adonai had shown Moshe, so he made the lampstand. Again Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. Then let them take a bull with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bull you shall take for a sin offering. So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before Adonai. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aharon shall then present the Levites before Adonai as a wave offering from the sons of Israel, that they may qualify to perform the service of Adonai. Now the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, then offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to Adonai to make atonement for the Levites. You shall have the Levites stand before Aharon and before his sons, so as to present them as a wave offering to Adonai. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Then after that the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aharon and to his sons from among the sons of Israel, to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting, and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel, so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. Thus did Moshe and Aharon and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites, according to all that Adonai had commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to them. The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aharon presented them as a wave offering before Adonai. Aharon also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then after that the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aharon and before his sons, just as Adonai had commanded Moshe concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Now Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, This is what applies to the Levites. From twenty-five years old and upward they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. 
but at the age of fifty years they shall retire from service in the work, and not work any more. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting, to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. Chapter 9 Thus Adonai spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time, on the fourteenth day of the month. At twilight you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moshe told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that Adonai had commanded Moshe, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moshe and Aharon on that day. Those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead people, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of Adonai at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moshe therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what Adonai will command concerning you. Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person, or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to Adonai. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey, and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people. For he did not present the offering of Adonai at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. If an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to Adonai, according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent... Afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of Adonai, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of Adonai, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep Adonai's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of Adonai, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of Adonai, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month, or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of Adonai, they camped, and at the command of Adonai, they set out. They kept Adonai's charge according to the command of Adonai through Moshe. Chapter 10 then Adonai spoke further to Moshe, saying, Make for yourself two trumpets of silver. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation, and for having the camp set out. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however, 
you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Aharon, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before Adonai your Elohim and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifice of your peace offerings. And they shall be as a reminder of you before your Elohim. I am Adonai, your Elohim. Now in the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of Adonai through Moshe. The standard of the camp of the sons of Yehuda, according to their army, set out first, with Nachshon the son of Aminadav over its army, and Netanel the son of Zuar over the tribal army of the sons of Yisachar, and Eliab the son of Helon over the tribal armies of the sons of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuven, according to their armies, set out with Elizur, the son of Shediur, over its army, and Shelumiel, the son of Zerushidai, over the tribal army of the sons of Shimon, and Elisaph, the son of Deuel, was over the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then the Kohatites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out, with Elishama, the son of Amihud, over its army, and Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh, and Avidan, the son of Gideoni, over the tribal army of the sons of Benjamin. Then the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rearguard for all the camps, set out, with Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, over its army, and Pagiel, the son of Ochran, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and Ahira, the son of Enan, over the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. Then Moshe said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moshe's father-in-law, We are setting out to the place which Adonai said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good. For Adonai has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather I will go to my own land and relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us, inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you go with us, that whatever good Adonai does for us, we will do for you. Thus they set out from the Mount of Adonai three days' journey, with the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai journeying in front of them for three days, to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of Adonai was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the Ark set out that Moshe said, Rise up, Adonai, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, Adonai, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Chapter 11 Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Adonai. And when Adonai heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Adonai burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moshe, and Moshe prayed to Adonai, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of Adonai burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. 
The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moshe heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of Adonai was kindled greatly, and Moshe was displeased. So Moshe said to Adonai, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For that weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Adonai therefore said to Moshe, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear, bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of Adonai, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore Adonai will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected Adonai who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moshe said, The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month? Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Adonai said to Moshe, Is Adonai's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moshe went out and told the people the words of Adonai. Also he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then Adonai came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the seventy elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but the, they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man told Moshe and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Yehoshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moshe from his youth said, Moshe, my Lord, restrain them. But Moshe said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all Adonai's people were prophets, that Adonai would put his spirit upon them. Then Moshe returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now there went forth a wind from Adonai, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered in ten omers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of Adonai was kindled against the people, and Adonai struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibrot Ha'atava, 
because there they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kibrot Ha'atava, the people set out for Hazerot, and they remained at Hazerot. Chapter 12. Then Miriam and Aharon spoke against Moshe because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has Adonai indeed spoken only through Moshe? Has he not spoken through us as well? And Adonai heard it. Now the man Moshe was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly Adonai said to Moshe and to Aharon and to Miriam, You three, come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then Adonai came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called to Aharon and Miriam. When they had come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Adonai, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moshe. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of Adonai. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moshe? So the anger of Adonai burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aharon turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aharon said to Moshe, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead. His flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moshe cried out to Adonai, saying, O Elohim, heal her, I pray. But Adonai said to Moshe, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hadzeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Beha'alotcha. Now, last week in Parashah Naso, it ended with the offerings brought forth by the 12 tribes. This week, the tabernacle has finally been completed. They've re- received instructions. They are to move out. We see the uh, description of the cloud would move. They would follow. But the very first instructions after the completion of the tabernacle are about the menorah. The children of Israel have been camped at the base of Mount Sinai for almost a year and a half at this point. After Moshe spent two separate 40-day stints on the mountain, finally the tabernacle is completed and the children of Israel are ready to go march into the promised land. But before they can do so, we're reminded that the light emanating from the menorah was to be a reminder that it was ultimately the presence of Adonai that would illumine their path. This, of course, is incredibly fitting considering what the menorah symbolizes. Adonai uses the mouth of the prophet Isaiah to say this about his servant in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In the gospel of John, Yeshua identifies himself as being that very light that Adonai prophesied about through the words of the prophet Isaiah. It says in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Yeshua again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. Then, four chapters later, Yeshua makes this proclamation in chapter 12, verses 44 through 46. And Yeshua cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Yeshua is the menorah, the light of the world. The menorah is made of pure gold. No wood was contained in it. Its construction was of gold that was hammered and beaten into shape. The cups of the menorah are filled with pure oil. In the same way, Yeshua was the sinless, pure one with no contamination to be found in him. He humbled himself, scourged, beaten, and crucified on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, symbolized by the oil, is the fuel for the light that should be burning within all of us, casting light upon a dark world all around us. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, Him being Yeshua, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In light of all these things, let us strive to be diligent to walk in the light, even as He is in the light. Let us be a light unto the nations. Let's not be hidden under a basket, but let's be beacons of light set upon a hilltop so that everyone around can see us shining brightly for His glory. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. And if you would, for a Haftor portion this week, if you would turn to the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 2. Just as a quick review in our portion, the Torah portion of this week, uh, Numbers chapter 8, why it talked about uh, some of the priestly that were associated with the temple, specifically about how to mount the lamps and, and trim the lamps up for it. And you're going to find that this portion has to do with uh, some discussion about the lampstand. Now, it's the prophet that's talking about how the lampstand is symbolizing certain things to us. And right off uh, the bat, if, if I were to sit with you and say, well, let's take the menorah uh, lampstand, the seven candelabrum, you know, does it symbolize certain things to us? And the answer would be yes. There's a number of things it symbolizes. The oil, for example, that's in the lamp is a representation in many instances of the Holy Spirit. The seven different um, branches uh, that form the menorah it certainly tracks with Isaiah 11 and the seven spirits of God. Um, and there's just a whole series of teachings that you could do just on the lampstand. So here is... Uh, Zechariah, you know, based on the duties of the priests in the Torah portion to trim the lamps and the other temple service, and he's going to focus in on a very powerful uh, prophetic uh, element about what the lampstand is about. So with that as an introduction, let me get you into some of the reading of this. We're going to begin in, in um, Zechariah chapter 2. And we're going to begin uh, at verse 6, and we're going to go through 
uh, chapter 4, and I'm going to go ahead and include all of chapter 4 because it ties in uh, to the same subject. And and, uh, verse 6, it says, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me from the nations, will plunder you. For he who torches you, or he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then they will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and will become my people Then I will dwell in their midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord shall possess Judah as his possession uh, in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has aroused from his holy habitation. Now. You're going to find that in these next couple of chapters, the basis of the Apostle John in a whole bunch of prophecies about the book of Revelation. You're going to discover that the original core idea for many things being presented in the Revelation come from here. Now, if you if you caught the drift of this, this is talking about the return of the Messiah. This is a talking about how he's going to come back and he's going to dwell and we're, he's going to be in Jerusalem and we're going to dwell with him. And he speaks of, for example, get out of Babylon, Revelation 17. Get out of her, my people. It's almost a repeat of what Zechariah said. You're going to hear, for example, uh, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. You're going to hear that language. Those are all things in the book of Revelation associated with the final uh, age, the final days, the coming of the Lord. Here's Zechariah talking about that. And what he's going to do is he's going to tie together certain priestly things and certain things associated with the temple that's also part of the picture of his return, part of the picture of what you're going to find in the book of Revelation. Let me continue with it just a little bit further. Chapter 3, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Back up. You know what the word Joshua is there, don't you? It's Yeshua. Then he showed me Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Is that the picture we know about the Messiah? That's in right now in heaven, that he's at the right hand of the Almighty, and he's dealing with the accuser, and he's being an advocate for us. You know, where we got all that from? Here's Zechariah describing the same scene. And interestingly enough, before the people knew who, what the Messiah's name was, he's referring to the name. He's referring to the name of the Messiah before we even found out who the Messiah was. And he's talking about the role of him. And he's talking about something that will happen. There's going to be a transition. Uh, Verse 2, And the Lord of hosts said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke, and he said to who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festival robes. Now, in this particular image, we're not talking about the Messiah had dirty robes and so forth. We're talking about really the relationship of him with his bride, the whole unit. By the way, the bride right now has got filthy robes on. We need to be cleaned up. We, we, and what will happen here is there's a, a moment coming where we're all wearing clean festival ro- robes. Why festival robes? Uh, because we're getting married. And, and besides, that's the appointed times of the Lord. The appointed times is part of the picture of the marriage of, of the Messiah to his people. And he goes on a little bit. Again, the language here. We understand now better because we've got the book of Revelation and we see the testimony of Yeshua and we understand the future prophetic implications of what we're, what we're anticipating. And we find Zechariah is talking to the same stuff uh, and to the same things. He goes on further. Uh, verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you also govern my house and also shall have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Let's talk about us. If we will uh, walk in his ways, if we'll learn his ways, if, we'll, if the temple service will suddenly be a part of our worship service, toward God, that we'll come and worship him in the way he specifies, that we will have access to the whole house of the Lord. And the reason is because we will dwell there. We will be where the Lord dwells. Now, let me go ahead and accelerate just a little bit because I really want to get to chapter 4 because this is going to get very, very interesting for us. it gets to chapter 4 and it says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned, roused me, roused me like a man who was awakened from sleep. Let's stop about that for a moment. If you're roused from sleep, how alert and discerning are you? You're really not. You, you can see things, but you're still processing them. You're still, in my case, I get up in the morning and I've got to rub my eyes. You know, I'm seeing things that I'm like, I don't really see them as good as I can. You know, I go to walk, and I don't walk as good as if I've been up for a while. I kind of, you know, kind of stumble around and look woozy, you know, kind of thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to wake up. And so keep that in mind that this is what the prophet is expressing. He's talking about that moment when you first are roused out of sleep, and you're, you're trying to pull it together, but you're not quite all the way there. And... Verse 2, and he said to him, what do you see? So in this state, you're looking out, what do you see? And he said, well, this is what I see. I see, behold, a lampstand, all gold with its bowl on the top of it. It's seven lamps on it and seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. And two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side of the bowl. Well, that's an interesting image. Here's this menorah, temple menorah, seven branches, and there's spouts, and there's two olive trees either side. Did you know that's the crest of the state of Israel today? If you look at the crest of the state of Israel, it's a menorah and two olive branches on either side of it. 
And they developed the crest for the state of Israel based on this passage of Scripture. Now, what is the meaning behind that? Why, what, what do people think of that? Well, the oil that's used in the lamps comes from the olive. So it's the, the supply of oil comes from this living olive tree. And that's the oil that then is the fuel, which then becomes the flame and the light of the menorah. And this is the light that is inside the sanctuary, inside where the, you know, the presence of God dwells. This is his lampstand. And as I mentioned to you before, when we talked about the menorah, all of the symbology, all the things that we know about the lampstand, um, the Holy Spirit, seven spirits of God, all of these things are bound up in part of this imagery and is part of the understanding that comes with it. Now, it's highly symbolic, but as you know, when a prophet gives you something highly symbolic, there's great meaning uh, behind it. So the stage is now set for us to discover another meaning, and it has absolute implications into the book of Revelation. So he sees that imagery. And he says, then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? What, what am I really seeing here? I see these two olive trees. I see the menorah. I know oil comes from the olive. I know that's the fuel for the lamp. What, what am I really seeing here? What, what is the business of these two olive trees in this lamp? So the angel who was speaking with me, this is verse 5, Answered and he said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Why would he ask that question? Don't you know what these mean? Let me tell you why. It's because we're supposed to have already seen the imagery, understand the metaphor, and those are supposed to be the ready things that we think of when we see a menorah. In here in the assembly where I'm at, there's a seven candelabrum menorah that is sitting here. When I see that, I'm provoked to thought about a multitude of teachings that are in the scriptures about the menorah. It's not just a lamp that makes lamp, a light in a place. There's way more to it. And that's what he's saying to Zechariah. You know, what, why is it that you have a question about this? Don't you see uh, all that's a part of that? And, of course, Zechariah says, no, my Lord. Verse 6, then he answered and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, to the king who was at that time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that is probably one of the most compelling and profound statements about understanding how our faith works. The world that we live in. Um, we see the solution to many things by might and power, okay? Like, for example, I'm conservative in my political outlook. In the days that I live, I, I see President Trump. By the way, there's a lot of liberals that don't like him. And I, you know, it's not because of President Trump, and I really like him, it's just how much I dislike the, the liberals. 
I think they've gone brain dead on me. I, th I think they've lost their mind. I, I, I think there's something wildly weird about them. And in fact, I'm of the opinion at the moment, and this is, I hate to make this time date sensitive, but I'm of the opinion at the moment, at least what's going on, that in their effort to get President Trump to destroy him, they're willing to destroy the whole country just to get at him. And there's a kind of a madness involved with it. Now, let me tell you, when we talk about not by power, not by might, let me tell you what one of the first things that comes to my mind about thinking about that problem and all those people, I'm ready to rise up in my mind, let's just go take them all out. You know, if you're liberal Democrat, I'll put you out of your misery. And save the country. You know, and, and I'll use power and might to do all of these things. Now, step back. I'm a spiritual man. The Lord has just said that won't work, Monty. That's not the solution. But by my spirit, the world will change. And we're looking for the day when peace will come and his kingdom will be established. And it won't come because all of us evangelicals and believers and messianics, we all load up and we go take out every liberal Democrat one afternoon. It just it's not going to work that way. Uh, uh, there's a part of me that says, wouldn't that work? You know, no. The Bible says that's not going to work. You do not win by just eliminating your enemies. It's by the Spirit of God that real change and real work of the kingdom takes place. That means also, that if you're in the ministry and you're doing the work, it's not your efforts. It's not your strength that's going to accomplish the things of the kingdom and the profit for the king. It will be by the Spirit of God, and the quicker that you yield to the leadership of his Spirit instead of your strength, the quicker we're going to get to the business of actually doing what the Lord wants to do. Not by your power, not by your might, but my, my Spirit, saith the Lord. Very, very profound wisdom here, and is expressed in the midst of I'm getting ready to show you something very powerful about the menorah, and I'm getting ready to tell you something prophetic about the menorah, but let's get this straight first. Let's make sure we all understand it's by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, why would he inject that at this point? Well, if you have studied the menorah, and you know something about the seven spirits of God associated with the menorah, you know that the very middle one is called the Spirit of the Lord. The, the center one of the menorah is called the Spirit of the Lord. You have the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of knowledge, Spirit of understanding, Spirit of counsel, uh, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. You have these different spirits, but the center one is called the Spirit of the Lord. Here's what he's saying, but by my Spirit. So the menorah is telling you something. It's telling you, you have to follow what the Spirit of the Lord says and does. That's another implication. Now, if you're in conflict, you're struggling with something, and part of your soul is being grated by that situation where you say, well, I, I want to do something about it. I want to express my might and power. That's not going to be the solution, Monty. The solution will be by the Spirit of the Lord. So with that that little profound thing set there. Let's see what else he has to say that goes with it. Verse 7. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with the shouts of grace, grace to you, to it. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the temple. 
He said, you know, we, we see the temple as these high lifted up stones. And he said, no, the really top capstone, the really top thing that will be, will be the grace of God. Wow, that's another profound statement. Anything that we would accomplish spiritually is going to come by the grace of God, not by any efforts of us. You know, there was, we're not going to make a large structure here by me putting one stone on top of another. No, it's going to happen when God's grace comes from the top and enables all of that to happen. For those of you who are mature in the faith, and I certainly identify with the, this particular part, I look back on my life, and you probably do the same, and you can see moments where God was being very gracious and very merciful to you. I, I certainly can. And by the way, grace and mercy, you know, grace is just receiving blessings that you weren't entitled to, and mercy is just not getting punishments that you did deserve. You know, so they're really talking about undeserved favor, and that's what grace is talking about. We see the mercy of God, we see the grace of God that has been expended to us. And that is the overshadowing thing of the things of God in working with us. He goes on to say, um, verse 9, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house, and his hands will finish it. In other words, we're talking about building the temple. And by the way, Zerubbabel was responsible for building the temple uh, at this particular time. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And Zechariah was a prophet in the same day as Zerubbabel, and he used this word to encourage Zerubbabel to go forward with the building of the temple. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. This is Zerubbabel passing on this word. He said, the Lord will be pleased when he sees you, Zerubbabel, holding that plumb line up so that the walls can be built correctly. And by the way, the plumb line that we're talking about is the same plumb line that's in Revelation chapter 11, where it talks about um, setting a cornerstone, rebuilding the altar, measuring God's people. And the way you measure God's people is you hold up a plumb line. Let me tell you what a plumb line does. It pulls straight down from the gravity of the earth, and it makes a straight up and down line. That's straight up and down. That is upright. And when God's people have to be measured... God holds a plumb line up against us to see if we're in parallel. Are we upright like the plumb line or are we crooked or we lean one way or the other? You use a plumb line to verify that the wall is being built correctly. You verify that a person is upright and vertical. So he's talking about the measurement tool and how the construction of the temple will be done. And again, we're all talking about items having to do with temple service and getting the temple reestablished uh, so that the priests can do their duties. And then he goes on first. So he says, um, verse 7, I want to re- re- read that to you. For who has despised the day of small things? When you first start the construction of an altar or start the construction of a temple, it starts with small things. You just set a cornerstone. Then everything starts being built off of it. And the first, you know, the first step, which is small, 
is very crucial to get it get it going correctly. The old uh, Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one small step. Uh, the same kind of wisdom uh, that you're not to despise that, look down on it, uh, you know, for because great things will come from it. Uh, I took to heart this when I started Lion Land Ministries. Uh, more than 22 years ago, when Lion Land Ministries got established, um, it was Lynn, it was myself, I had two kids and one computer. Small things. Now, the ministry as compared to that is incredible. But had I not done those things, those small steps, we wouldn't have what we have today in terms of being an operating ministry. And this is true of anything of value and quality that gets built. It starts with small things. Despise not small beginnings. You know, the Lord, don't look down on that. That's, you have to do that. That's part of the building process. And so he's reviewing this and encouraging Zerubbabel, build the temple. You know, do these things. Then he goes down to, and he says, um, uh, for who has despised, he goes on further, he says, these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the world. That's a very interesting statement to be inserted there because that is something that we specifically say concerning the days, the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So he is making a statement that's directly associated with that, those Moedim, those times, because we refer to that as the days of awe, the days of fear, it's the days of repentance. And we say during those ten days that the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout the earth to determine who will live and who will die. And that he makes his decision on Yom Kippur. Who shall live and who shall die? And Yom Kippur, of course, is the day of the Lord. When the Messiah comes back on the day of the Lord... He's done all the looking he's going to do. He makes his decision who lives and who dies. And so there's a reference to this, and there's a reference to the future day of judgment. Book of Revelation again. A reference to him coming and fulfilling Yom Kippur uh, for it as well. Verse 11, and this is the part I really wanted to get you to. Then I answered and I said, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left? We're back to that image that he was sown. I got the menorah. I think I understand some of the stuff about the menorah. What's with the two olive trees? What is that about? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? In other words, he saw the oil coming from the, the olive trees and going to the menorah to provide the fuel for the light. So he answered and saying to me, do you not know what these are? Again, no, my Lord. You know, why is it you don't quite understand what you're seeing? It's always been there. It's there. Why don't you see it? Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. What a profound interpretation he's just given. You can take that verse there and you can go right now to Revelation chapter 11 and you can now interpret and understand everything in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. What does that talk about? 
It talks about there's going to be two witnesses during the final days. There will be two men in Jerusalem. They will come up on the Temple Mount. They will stand on either side of the cold altar that has been shut down that has started the Great Tribulation. Remind everybody, what's the first day of the Great Tribulation? When they stop the daily sacrifice on the altar that's on the Temple Mount. And these are two men that go up and they stand either side of the altar and they testify to the world. They're in kind of a role like Moses and Aaron announcing the judgments that will fall upon the earth during the Great Tribulation. And they are prophesied to be there and to do that ministry for 1,260 days, the days of the Great Tribulation. They will be there testifying to the world, just like Moses and Aaron stood up and testified before Pharaoh. They will stand up and testify against the anti-Messiah, against the false prophet, against the kings of this world, against all the people of the world, and they will pronounce God's judgments on them so that the world will know who the Lord is. Same ministry, same purpose as Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. And he's referring to them as standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That phrase is a very unique and specific phrase that directly has to do with the altar. When the altar is operational in the temple, each day there is a psalm associated with it. They're called the altar psalms. And there's a daily sacrifice. And then there's the other sacrifices that come in 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 the service of the Lord. The first day and the first words ever spoken over an altar at when it is ordained comes from Psalms 24, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Meaning that the God who made the stones that are in this altar and and anything that touches these stones, which, by the way, would include the rest of the planet that touches those stones, that he is the Lord of all of it. He's the Lord. The conclusion we make, he's the Lord of the whole earth. That declaration is saying those stones that touch the earth, all of the stones and everything they touch, It all belongs to the Lord. So he's the Lord of the whole earth. It's his ownership symbol. It's his testimony. I own it all. Well, you know that in the Great Tribulation, this is the big dispute. This is the reason why the altar gets shut down. They want to stop God's ownership symbol of the whole earth because the Messiah is coming, and he wants the earth. He wants to steal it from the Messiah. He wants to destroy God's people, have his own thing, have his own world. And it goes back to the temptation that was given to the Messiah. We know this is Satan's plan. The final temptation given to the Messiah was bow down and I'll give you the world and all of its glory. Well, Satan can't give the world and all of its glory because Satan doesn't own the whole earth. But in this world of deception, people think he does own it. And he acts like he owns it. And so we know this isn't right. This isn't the kingdom. This isn't what God purposed with this place. We know the enemy's come in and has essentially stolen it. And then he's going to contend that it belongs to him. And that's the reason why he shuts the altar down at the first part. That's his argument. I'm against God and your altar symbol that says you're the Lord of the whole earth. No, I dispute you. The earth belongs to me and the fullness thereof. 
And so that's the conflict of the Great Tribulation. So these two anointed ones is referring to the two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11, who stand either side of the altar. The altar is the symbol of who is the Lord of the whole earth. And that's where their ministry is. Now, just in the short passages that I've um, mentioned here, these statements and things I've given from Zechariah 2 to Zechariah 4, I pretty much have covered a lot of the high points of the entire book of Revelation. This takes me back to um, uh, when I was a much younger man uh, that I was invited, uh, I think by accident, but I was invited just the same, um, to go to, when I, this was when I was in Colorado Springs, was invited by the local synagogue to come, and they invited other pastors and preachers and other religious leaders. We were invited to come to the synagogue and hear a series of presentations and lectures, I'll never forget this, from a rabbi cook, cook spelled with a K. And he was a, quote, uh, professor at Hebrew University, and he was, quote, an expert on the New Testament, and he wanted to make a presentation on um, what Jews think about Jesus. And he was going to go back in ancient times and give a lot of background. This is how the Jewish people have viewed him at various times. Some Talmudic stuff of what, what they think and so forth. Like, you know, the Talmud was written after the time of, of Yeshua. So he had these places in the Talmud where the Jewish commentary, the, the big rabbis are discussing elements of Yeshua having come. And he was making a presentation that he described where there were like five uh, specific places the Talmud talks about Yeshua. It was a very fascinating presentation. I learned a lot about Jewish thought. And that was the reason why I wanted to, I wanted to go to it was because I really wanted to understand how do my brethren who don't believe in Yeshua, how do they, how do they deal with the testimony of him? How, how do they deal with the things he did, the things that are written of him, you know, and so forth? How, how do they wrestle with all that? Let me just give you a short synopsis of what I learned from it. They think, I'm not making this up, they think that he has a young man uh, that he traveled around the world, uh, not the leech of which is France, Babylon, and that he got involved in sorcery, and that's how he could do magical things and heal people and stuff like that because he was a sorcerer. And, oh, by the way, and he um, um, had a lot of tattoos. That, that's what they think. And that, um, um, the, uh, that that's what Yeshua was all about. That's their explanation. Utterly bizarre. I mean, ridiculously bizarre. Um, and they even went into how do they explain the resurrection and uh, things like that. Well, in the course of that discussion, I, I was given an opportunity, all of us were, to pose some questions, to ask some additional questions about um, part of the presentation. Well, one of the questions that I asked was, I said, given all that you've been saying, and so what do you think of the book of Revelation? And he immediately responded, these were the words, he said, oh, it's a stolen book. I said, a stolen book? Revelation is a stolen book. I mean, it's a, it's a Christian written book. How do, you, how do you steal from the Jewish people, from Israel, a Christian book. And he said, 
There's not one symbol and not one new idea in there that isn't expressed by the prophets of Israel to begin with. And that was the first time it took him. That was the first time something clicked for me. You know what, Rabbi Cook? You are correct. You are absolutely correct. The book of Revelation is pulling together all these different prophecies that we already have is making sense out of them. It's correlating them together. Not the least of which is Zerubbabel here, or excuse me, Zechariah here, seeing two olive trees on either side of a menorah, which then turns into two anointed ones standing on either side of the altar. It's the same imagery. And that's where that imagery came from that is being shown to John in the book of Revelation, only this time it's all coming together a little bit like Grand Central Station is bringing all the trains in from all the different places. All the prophecies from all the different places are coming into this place. I guess what I would like to encourage you with uh, this Shabbat as we look at this portion, that those things in the Torah about trimming the lamps, about the work of the priesthood. There's great meaning and a great value in all of those things. This Haftorah portion, which is paralleling some of that, is just full of imagery that is used in the book of Revelation to explain to you and me what God's going to be doing with us at the end of the ages and the things we will see and why they mean so much to us and why they're so important to us. So I hope uh, this portion, this Haftorah portion, has been a source of encouragement to you, and I hope you'll begin to realize there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. Much of it's right here in Zechariah for us to read. Amen? All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to chapter 19, hold your finger at verse 31, where a Brit Hadashah portion will begin. Let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for once again the opportunity to dig into your word and your instruction. Father, as the Torah comes alive to us each and every week and ministers to us, encourages us uh, in whatever issues we might be facing throughout the week, Father, I pray that this uh, teaching would be uh, no different, Father, that you would speak to us, uh, where we, meet us where we are in the situations we're in, for your word is alive and powerful, Lord, and I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened uh, as we dig into your word once again. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Brit Hadashah uh, reading that I'm going to start with uh, for this week comes here from John chapter 19. This is a, a story I talked about last week. Um, and so there's, it's kind of interesting sometimes how uh, passages sort of connect to one another from one week to the next. And so I talked about this last week, but now I want to tie it into this week's uh, Torah portion as well. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the others who were crucified with him. 
But when they came to Jesus, Yeshua, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced this is the story after the messiah died on the cross and that he was um that his side was pierced his legs were not broken so that he could be the fulfillment of the passover lamb in which the legs were not meant to be broken and that the piercing represented uh several different things one the water and blood represented the water libation ceremony that was done in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. It also uh, was connected to, as I said last week, to the fact that his belly swelled in the course of this judgment that was upon him so that he could pay the price for the adultery of Israel, whom God is in covenant with, and so that he could pay that price of an adulterous bride so that the covenant might remain. Now, the reason why it's spoken of uh, this week in our Torah portion as well goes back to the beginning of the story as to the fact that it was the day of preparation, it was the Sabbath, and that the Pharisees went before Pilate and they said, this, these, body, these men need to, be, need to be dead and they need to be put into the ground before the Sabbath day so that we are not defiled in the keeping of the Passover. This connects back to our Torah portion this week, uh, which is entitled Bacha Alotcha. And in our Torah portion, in, specifically in Numbers chapter 9, it talks about the children of Israel keeping the Passover in the wilderness. This was in the second year after leaving Egypt. So the children of Israel, though we've gone through many weeks of study, uh, all of the things that we've done probably in the last several months of Torah portions all took place within the course of one year. From the coming to Mount Sinai, from the instruction of the giving of the Torah, to the instruction of building and constructing the tabernacle, to the actual construction of the tabernacle, the um, ordination of the high priests, uh, the implementation of sacrifices, and all the things that have happened um, have all happened in one year. And so we have our instruction in Numbers 9 that says that now it was the second year. And they kept the Passover in the wilderness. But there was a certain men, there was a group of people that came and they said they had been defiled by a human corpse. Perhaps a loved one within the camp had passed away. And when it came time to give the, the, the sacrifice for the Passover, now with a, the tabernacle and with it operating uh, for the sake of all of the camp of Israel, these men said they had been defiled by a human corpse. And that they were because they didn't want to keep the Passover in an unworthy way or in an unworthy manner. And so God or Moses went before the Lord and the Lord actually gave a specific provision saying that if somebody had been defiled or if somebody was on a journey and were unable to keep the Passover, that they could keep it one month later in the act of them being defiled or unable to keep the Passover. What it speaks to is it speaks to the importance of the Passover. It speaks to the fact that even if you're unable to keep and, and to, to fulfill the Passover with the sacrifice or to do it, and maybe you're defiled so you can't do it, or you're on a journey so you're unable to do it, that there is a provision in which you can keep it a month later. This is the only uh, commandment that it really seems like there is a contingency plan for uh, if you're unable to do it at a specific time, you can do it at another time. 
This speaks to the importance of the Passover and what it's supposed to mean to us and what it represents. It represents our redemption from and to remember and memorialize what God did for us in Egypt. But then for those of us who are believers in Yeshua, we are to truly understand the meaning of it to us in our salvation from sin and the passing of death to eternal life and how the Messiah conquered death. We should not take the Passover lightly. When there, and if this has ever happened, if you lose a loved one at the time in near and around Passover, you should execute this provision. You should not um, repre- come into the feast and the celebration of Passover, which represents the new covenant that Messiah has given to us. And we should not associate death with that resurrection, with the idea that we have been given life. That is also why... In general, when it comes to the sacrifice of Yeshua, when it comes to what the Messiah did for us, we as Messianics don't tend to focus on the crucifixion, on the death, on the, 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 the pain that he's... Now, we understand the payment that he paid was we were deserving of death. But truly, the, the, the story, the good news that comes out of everything that the Messiah did in the implementation of the new covenant at the Passover, and him rising from the grave, the resurrection that he, that he uh, did and fulfilled on the Feast of First Fruits and on the Resurrection Day, that that is the greatest thing of this story. That's the part that we almost choose to focus on more so than the death itself. That is because death is not supposed to be associated with the Feast of Freedom, with the Feast of Redemption. It's not about death. It's about coming alive. It's about being made alive. And that is what the children of Israel celebrate when it comes to the Passover. The, this is this provision that is given for us here. And this is the sort of the connection in the New Testament that is to remind us of that. To remind us that we serve a God of the living, not a God of the dead. We serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. And that we are to follow him appropriately and accordingly. Now, in our Torah portion as well, there seems to be a great deal of, um, I, I don't know if you could call it housekeeping announcements or instructions in which to understand the organization of the camp of Israel. And this is playing off of the idea that we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. God has said in the scripture that he, anything that he has planned, he has purposed, he will do it, he will fulfill it, he will execute it. He is not just going to haphazardly decide, hey, this is when this prophet is going to come. This is when the Messiah is going to come. No, everything had a plan and a purpose in the course of history, in the course of the, the will of God, that God is a God of order. So in our instruction, in our Torah portion, it talks about the cloud of fire uh, by night and pillar of cloud by day, and that when it went up and it left, we followed, that we were to go, and when, when the pillar moved, we followed it we went and we we when it moved we moved and in the case what i'm reminded of is that the messiah himself is likened unto a burning torch that that pillar represented god god's presence in the camp i go back to the story about abraham and when the covenant of the pieces and that what walked through those pieces in the forming of the covenant between abraham and god that there was a a, a smoking furnace and a burning torch Some people, when you read it too fast, you might think, oh, it's just visualizing what's there. But no, there's an and there that specifically says a smoking furnace went through the pieces and a burning torch went through the pieces. 
Well, what is that all about? Well, what I believe that is, is that's a representation of God the Father and God the Son. God the Father that sometimes appears in a smoking furnace, such as when he appeared on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain where it looked like a mountain that was on fire and it was like a burning, smoking furnace. But then the, the fire is the Messiah himself. When God manifests himself in a means by which he communicates to us, such as the, the um, burning bush that was a burning fire, which didn't consume the bush, but spoke directly with Moses, that fire some, often represents perhaps the Messiah himself in our presence. And so that's what the pillar of fire represented within the camp. There also was instruction regarding two silver trumpets, trumpets that were made and cast so that the uh, if certain trumpet blasts were blown in the camp of Israel, it represented different things. That if you heard both of them blow, that all the congregation was to gather at the tent of meeting. But if you only heard one of them blow, then only the leaders of the camp were, were meant to come. This created the order and the structure within the camp. Now, when it comes to listening and hearing for what is being spoken or communicated to us, there's a passage I want to go to in the New Testament that connects specifically to this passage and this uh, instruction with regard to these silver trumpets. If you would now go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, where it talks about um, where the Apostle Paul is speaking about the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Now, when this has been a subject of a great amount of debate before, when it's about what is the speaking in tongues? What is this when some people pray, and you've maybe seen this in charismatic churches, you've seen this maybe in certain people when they get into a, um, into a deep state of worship of the Lord, there's sometimes this language that comes out of people in the course of prayer. Even people who haven't grown up in charismatic churches have sort of naturally sort of either developed this, either in their own prayer life, in their own prayer language. And you cannot dismiss um, why, when you see somebody speaking in tongues that it is something that um, is personal and is, is, is special that comes out of us in the worship of God. I'm not one that's going to stand up and say, oh, yeah, all that is, is ridiculous or, oh, yes, that, that is supposed to be the end all be all of how God communicates with us in the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and these things. It's like, no, the answer lies somewhere in the middle of understanding what God is trying to do for us and what the worship of him is and what it in, entails. When we pray before God, it can be a very emotional experience for one person versus another person. And I personally know people who have, I've heard speak in tongues. I've heard them speak and I've heard them pray in that way and that there's something, there's something to it. Now, do we truly understand it? Do we truly under moves, understand the moves of the Spirit? No, no, we don't. But this was an issue back in the first century as well. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians. And that when it comes to the speaking of tongues, if there is a message that comes in the speaking of tongues that is for the benefit of others, that what we have to do is we have to seek an interpretation. We have to find and seek what, what, what is this interpretation? What, what is it that's, that's being uh, communicated to us? So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's begin at uh, verse 1 and let's get the context of everything that's being spoken here. The Apostle Paul says this, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. 
For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. All right, this, I don't know about you, but that paragraph is very clear to me. Some people might still be confused by it, but to me, it's, it's very clear to me. And that's mainly because we have an understanding of what prophecy is. Prophecy is someone who speaks the word of God. It is not somebody who predicts the future. It's not a righteous fortune teller that is a prophet. No, what often is, is that the Lord lays on somebody's heart to speak something that is for the edification of somebody else. That is, and what those words might be, is could be a combination of things. It could, it could be a combination of, um, he, the Lord told me to tell you this, um, good things are going to come to you if you follow and obey the Lord, if you continue to walk uprightly before him, blessings will abound upon you, and your family will be taken care of, and the lo- Lord will confirm his covenant with you. What an amazing, beautiful word that would be. Now, one could say, oh, you're predicting the future, Lord's going to bless you. It's like, no. In the course of that, there was an if. It was for the edification and the exhortation of the person who receives that word. If you walk uprightly before God in these ways, you will be blessed. Great word. Great message. The word of God being spoken through somebody for somebody else. That's what prophecy is. Now, the problem is that sometimes that prophecy is a word of warning. An exhortation, a word, a word to, to cause somebody to stir in their hearts to turn back to the Lord. Because what the a prophecy might say is this. Judgment will come upon you if you do not follow these words. Do not obey the Lord. If you do not walk uprightly before him, the Lord will turn his face against you. And you will receive judgment. And you'll be cut off from among your people. And that judgment will befall you um, in the last days or at some point in time. And that sounds, again, like this speaking into the future, this prediction of the future and saying judgment is going to come. And so then afterwards, after somebody did invariably walk away from God, didn't follow and obey the commandments, judgment comes. And then somebody way after the fact, thousand years later, two thousand years later or more, reads what somebody prophesied and said, wow, that guy predicted the future. He said judgment was going to come and that's what came. No, that's not what he, when the prophecy was spoken, it was not spoken to predict the future. It was spoken to edify the person, to stir in their heart, to say, turn away from your wicked ways, turn back to the Lord, walk uprightly before him. So you receive blessing, not that curse. It's not about predicting the future. It's about speaking the word of God to edify people. That's what prophecy is. And that's what apostle Paul is saying. I wish that everybody would prophesy over one another. That the word of God would just flow through us and speak to one another and that we would speak the word, words of encouragement, words of exhortation, exalting the Lord and edifying, showing love to one another. That's what prophecy is. That's what the Apostle Paul is asking for the people to do. However, he does not reject the fact that people also speak in tongues. And when somebody is over there in the in the congregation and the fellowship or whatever, and they're speaking in tongues and that's a communication between them and God. Between them and the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That yes, they edify himself. 
through God that God is speaking to them and encouraging them. And it's not for everybody else when somebody is speaking in tongues. It's not for everybody else unless there is an interpretation. Unless somebody hears what that said and says, and, and, and through the Spirit of God interprets it and says, okay, that person is speaking in tongues. God is edifying them, but what is being spoken can also edify the brethren. And the God, Spirit of God has, has blessed me to interpret what is being said there so that it can edify the whole body. That's it. That's the system. That's how it works. If you see somebody speaking in tongues, it's for them. Unless somebody comes and gives an interpretation, at which point it's for the whole body. That's it. Plain and simple. Done. The Apostle Paul wishes that we would all prophesy as opposed to speaking in tongues because speaking in tongues is a personal individual thing. You can do that in your own prayer life. You can do that personally between you and God or in a small setting of where you're praying for somebody else, something along those lines. And it's not necessarily intended for an entire congregation, an entire fellowship. If it is, you need an interpretation. Plain and simple. This is the nature of speaking in tongues and the difference between that and prophecy. I hope that that sort of sums it up. Now, again, the reason why it's set up this way, we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. So if we continue on reading here, there's a couple of phrases here that Apostle Paul continues on at verse 6 where he says tongues must be interpreted. Verse 6, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophecy, or by teaching. Everything, even things without life, whether flute or harp, or when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction of sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Verse 8, listen to this. For if a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks with will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Again, he, he, he spells it out for us in, in which it's this. You could be, you could have a flute or a guitar or an instrument that it can make all kinds of no, noises, but unless you hear that in some kind of order or structure, you don't know what's being played or you don't know why it's being played. I'm, I'm picturing a young kid who's learning violin for the first time and every member of the family just cringing every time the notes get played because they can hear it throughout the entire house and he's learning how to play, but he doesn't know and nothing real is being played. And that's what any kind of words that are spoken can be interpreted as as well. They, we can say all kinds of things. I can stand up here and I can say all kinds of things and it can sound like a clanging symbol and it can be noises and words and, and things that are incohesive in what's being said. In fact, sometimes I mis make a mistake and do speak incohesively and when I'm trying to either get a thought out. But generally what it is is there's an order to what is being said so it can be interpreted so that somebody hearing it can be edified so that knowledge can be gained and that there can be revelation and that teaching and, and, and lessons can be learned because of the way the words are organized. Instead of just being random words thrown out there, airplane, boat, 
uh, house, car, child, baseball. Some, I mean, I can just randomly make noises. And it's like, what is he saying? You don't even know unless somebody came along and interpreted and said, oh, he's telling a story. This is why he said this, 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 and this. That's why you need an interpretation. That's an example of how words, if not ordered, could be confusing. And, of course, the direct connection to our Torah portion is, of course, that one there in verse 8. When a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Because some of those trumpet blasts were to prepare for battle, were to bring the armies of Israel out because an enemy was approaching. If you didn't have those trumpets, if an enemy is coming and a trumpet comes out and it's just going, making all kinds of blaring noise and racket, and they're like, what in the world does that mean? Then, then the enemy comes and we didn't prepare for battle. Unless you have a trumpet blast that specifically hearkens you to battle, to which I know what that sound is. I know what that means. Grab the sword, grab the shield. It's time to go to battle and prepare and to do what needs to be done. That's what prophecy does. Prophecy teaches us and it's clear to us what we are to do. Tongues can be confusing. Other things and other words can be confusing and can be chaotic and without order. Instead, we follow a God of order. This is why people get very uncomfortable sometimes if they don't, haven't had this instruction. If they don't understand the difference between prophecy and speaking in tongues and that one edifies the whole congregation, one edifies an individual unless there's an interpretation. If you don't understand that, then you can walk into a charismatic church and you can be very uncomfortable with what you see and what's going on. Or any other worship service or place where the Spirit of the Lord is moving in the, in the room. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen the Spirit of God moving in a room. And it's sometimes it's in places you don't expect or there are certain places maybe you'd expect the Spirit of the Lord to move and it doesn't move. Ultimately, we don't control the Spirit of God. We don't. God does what he does. And so that we don't control those things. The Spirit just moves as it moves. And it's part of the will of God that we just sort of we go with the flow. Go with the flow of the Spirit. And the Spirit is likened unto air and a mighty wind that blows. And it's likened unto water as it flows. And so in all of those things, sometimes you don't, you don't put an umbrella up in a, in, a, in a wind. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting against the wind. It's like, no, you need to make yourself aerodynamic and move with the flow. Or if you're in the ocean, the waves, are, you have to go with the flow of the, of the ocean. That's how the Spirit moves sometimes to where... You need to just, there's understanding you need to have before you end up in that circumstance or in that situation. All right, now let's turn to Luke chapter 10. There's a very fascinating parallel to our Torah portion uh, that, uh, come, that, that I haven't seen really recognized uh, very often. And it has to do with the fact of that the Lord, the Messiah, sent out 70 people to go and to speak and to preach in the cities. And this idea of 70 is always very unique whenever you see it in the scriptures. And we see it in our Torah portion as well. But you might not have, I've honestly, when I've heard Torah portions being taught, um, I don't hear this section talked about very often. In the middle of Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 16, it talks about how Moses gathered together 70 men, 70 elders of the people, in where it specifically says that the spirit that is on Moses will be put on these 70 men and that they would then be able to prophesy in the camp and would be able to speak the words of God and from the spirit of God that normally only spoke through Moses would speak through these 70 elders. 
And it's fascinating the way this is set up. These 70 men came to the tabernacle, we assume. And then there's this interesting story about how two men who are called by God, and their names are actually given, uh, Eldad and Medad, of the, that were in the camp and that they were, the spirit fell upon them as well. And that they were in the camp prophesying within the camp. And somebody came running to Moses and says, Moses, there's two men that are prophesying in here. And Moses says, look, this is the spirit of the Lord moving. If the Lord moves in that spirit, that's what's going on. So that's what is being done here in the course of this story here in the middle of our, uh, of our Torah portion. Fascinating that then there's an instance in which the Messiah himself sends out 70 into the cities teaching two by two into the cities to prophesy before the Lord. Now, the report that comes back is wonderful. In the course of this entire story, let me go and read this here in Luke chapter 10, that there is um, that, that the word that comes back and the Lord uses these 70 to prophesy into the cities. It says this, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. And sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter... And they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God is come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for your city. This is prophecy that is being given. Saying, the kingdom of God is, is at hand. The kingdom of God is near to you. Be peace, be upon you. If we receive peace back, then blessings will come upon you. If you, we are not received, if our word is not received, then judgment will come. This is the nature of prophecy that is being uh, prophesied upon these cities wherever they might go. And it continues on with the, with the woes and the words of warning that would be upon some of these cities. Verse 13 of Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you. Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears, you hear me. He who rejects, you reject me, and he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. 
In that hour, Yeshua rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. What an amazing thing that was going on here in the first century, the testimony of the Messiah, going into the cities by the word of prophecy and by the word of these 70 that were sent out as well. And it talks about how we as believers and followers of the Messiah have been empowered to cast out demons. That we as believers, that's one of the blessings of being a believer, is that the power of God that is in us is the power which comes from heaven. And not that we should rejoice that demons are subject to us. That we walk around high and mighty and say, no demon can stand in my presence because of how, uh, how great my testimony in the Messiah is. No, 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 no. That's not for us to boast about being believers. But what it instead is, is that we have been given an incredible blessing to have our name written in the book of life and to be called by God and that we should have the humility to love God, worship God, bless him for the blessings and provisions that he has given. What we can then do as a result of having that testimony is simply something that is the power of God and not anything for us to boast about. That's something we should keep note of. And this is where... People who've been called to be a prophet or called to speak the word of God needs to be very careful in what kind of authority they come and they represent. Do they boast that they carry the authority of God? Do they boast that the, that God is, um, that God has given them the power to do all of these things. And so now you must sit and you must listen to me. No, that's not the way that it works. That is not, you sense immediately that there is some other spirit besides the spirit of God in that person. Perhaps a spirit of greed, perhaps a spirit of arrogance, perhaps a spirit of a worldly spirit that is some person thinking he's achieved something because he's been blessed by the Lord. No, that's not the spirit that we are to have. The spirit we are to have is to prophesy, as I said before. What is prophecy? Speaking the word of God. The message that the God, God has laid on your heart to say to somebody else or to a group of people for their edification so that they may be blessed, so that they may obey, so that they may do those things. Sometimes that word might include a blessing for doing good or a punishment for doing bad. It's not about predicting the future. It's about saying what the Lord wants to say to you so that you might make a choice. Do you choose to obey the Lord or do you choose to obey your own heart and your own fleshly desires? That's simply what prophecy is. That's simply what speaking the word of God is. And that here in, in our passage, in our story here, it's the, the Messiah is speaking to, when he concludes with the disciples, he says this, many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see here. Because what is being represented here is true prophecy. True prophecy that is coming straight from the Messiah, straight from God who sent him. And the people are hearing the words of what to say in these cities directly, audibly, with their own ears, out of the mouth of a man who is the embodiment of God so that the word is clear, coming from God, that is just true a prophecy as can be. 
Without the Messiah speaking directly to us, prophecy has to be something the Lord lays on our heart or says to us in a dream or a vision or a revelation. And then when we go to relay it, there's almost a question as to whether, did we really hear it correctly? Am I saying this right, Lord? Is this what you wanted me to say? Is this the prophecy that you have me to say? If it's truly what God has laid on your heart and it is from the Lord, then yes, it's prophecy. But when it came to what was happening here in the first century, audibly hearing the words out of the Messiah was the purest form of prophecy. And the Messiah said to his disciples, many have desired to see what you see and many have desired to hear what you hear, but you get to hear it. That's the blessing to those, to these first century uh, uh, followers of the Messiah to be able to see and hear and sense what is going on here prophecy wise. Now, last passage I want to go to, uh, we've talked about it before, but it connects once again to our Torah portion, and that's to Luke chapter 4. In our Torah portion, during the time in which the 70 elders were, were called to prophesy in the camp of Israel, there was a couple of grumblings, should we say, uh, that went on. There was the what happened at Taborah, where people at the edge of the camp started grumbling against the Lord, grumbling against the bread that had been, the, the manna from heaven that had been falling for them every single day for them to gather and to eat. And they desired meat, and they wished for what they used, they used to have back in the land of Egypt, and they rejected the food that was given to them by God, the very bread of life, the manna that fell from heaven. And then after the 70 elders were appointed as well, that's when we reached the place called the Graves of Craving, where they came to the place where quail came to them, fell to the ground before them, and they ate quail. They ate so much quail that all the ones that gave in to these cravings and to this gluttony that they were uh, consumed by, this desire for meat, it wasn't just food. It was a desire for meat. And they ate so much of it so fast and were judged and they died while they were still gnashing the meat between their teeth. And that this was a great judgment that took place in Israel and in the camp of Israel. Right after we let, right after we kept the Passover, right after we're leaving Mount Sinai on our way to get ready to head to the promised land. We, the children of Israel, we start grumbling, desiring meat and grumbling against the Lord and rejecting the bread, it wasn't about being hungry, because if you were hungry, you ate the manna and you were filled. It was lustful greed for and, and a craving for meat. And not to sacrifice your own animals of, your, uh, of the herds, because the children of Israel had herds. If you want meat, you keep them kill and eat. And it's like, no, they didn't want that. They wanted something else. And the Lord sends this quail, and this was a great judgment that came upon them. And this was one of the times that the children of Israel tested the Lord. It's one of the ten tests in the wilderness that the children of Israel did where they tested God as to whether God would be faithful to them. And they demanded something from God when that's not what God said he was going to do. And this is a mistake that many people make. When it comes to having a testimony in the Lord, and sometimes we might think, Lord, why hasn't this happened yet? Why isn't this? Or it's like, Lord, I want this. You've given me this and this and this. All of these blessings are good, but I want this blessing instead. That's when greed takes over. Imagine people that, you know, have no financial need. They are not in financial ruin in any way, shape, or form. But then that's the person that's saying, Lord, I want to win the lottery. I want all this money. I want to gain all of this money. It's like all your needs have been met. The Lord's committed to meet your needs. He hasn't committed to meet your wants. And you put the Lord to the test. And out of greed, you're demanding something from the Lord. That is not what we should do. 
This is the exact nature of the thing that the, the enemy, Hasatan, the adversary, tempted the Messiah with in the wilderness. That's why we're in Luke chapter 4, where the Messiah went into the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit, after being baptized by John the Baptist. He goes in, and then there, Satan, the devil, is in the wilderness and tempting him. Now that he's a man, but he's been filled with the Spirit of God, the devil is checking and testing, does the Spirit of God lead him or does his flesh lead him because he has both the messiah had both he had flesh and he had the spirit of god which is going to prevail which is going to to take over when it comes to the next words that come out of his mouth or the next thing that he says or the next action that he takes what will take over is it going to be the flesh is it going to be the spirit so the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, command the stone to be bread because he had been become hungry because he went into the wilderness for 40 days. He came, became hungry, grumblings in his stomach. The devil says, turn this rock into bread. You can do it. And the Messiah answered him and he said, as written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He immediately knew this tempting that he was not going to be tempted by food in any way, shape or form. And then he sets him up on a high mountain and he says, I give you all authority, all the kingdoms of the world and all of these things. And it's like you, you can have all of these things. And this is and once again, another temptation, worldly of, of, of power and authority. But being led by the spirit of God, Yeshua was not tempted. He was or he was tempted, but he did not give in to the temptation. This is what we as believers all have the power to do. The temptations will come because we are flesh. But if the Spirit of God is what inhabits us, we reject the temptation and instead follow what the Lord has said. Later on, it goes in here saying, um, as, as Satan is still trying to, to uh, tempt him and cause him to uh, disobey the Lord and to, to reject God, Yeshua answers back to Satan in verse 12 where it says this. He says, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This was the last thing that the Messiah said to the devil that stopped all of the temptations from coming. Because it's like, because in the course of this dialogue, it's not a matter of that we're testing God and his power because we're not to do that. If it's God's will for us to be hungry, then we should be hungry. If it's God's will for us to be uh, to, to have less authority in one area or another, well, then that's God's will. We can't let our fleshly desires come over and take us over. Well, the children of Israel, they didn't learn this lesson very well at all. Their earthly, fleshly desires for a certain type of food that tasted a certain way got the better of them. And they rejected the bread of life. You know that bread that I was talking about earlier, that, that bread of the, of the Passover that we're supposed to eat that is the very word of God that we put into our mouth, that bread that represents life and eternal life. And we're talking about the Passover and how important the Passover was. I was saying that earlier. Imagine if you just reject it outright. Say, I don't want any of that. I don't want the bread of life. I don't want the bread of the covenant between us and God. I don't want to keep the Passover. I was unable to keep the, you know, I, I missed the Passover this year, and it's all like, oh, I could do it again in a month. Nah, I still don't want to do it. What? That is outright rejection of the bread of life. That is the rejection of God. That's blasphemy. That's the gravest sin that anyone could commit, is to reject God. Instead, we should have the heart. 
to want to eat that bread, eat that bread of life, and know that it meets all of our needs and we don't need anything else. And even if we come and the provision was given to us, I missed the Passover. I couldn't make it. I was defiled. I was unclean. I couldn't eat of it. I was on a great journey. I couldn't do it. It's like, oh, wait, it's coming again next month. I can do it again next month. Then I'm there because I want to eat the bread. I am not rejecting the bread of life. I am choosing the bread of life over all the other cravings and things that I might be led by. That is the testimony that we should have as believers to not then tempt the Lord to judge us because of our desires and our greeds. These are the lessons that we learn from the Torah. And as the uh, story of the Torah now shifts, as the rest of the book of Numbers, as they're now leaving uh, Mount Sinai, we were done with all the commandments for the tabernacle and the priesthood and the Levites. And then the stories of what the children of Israel did for the rest of the wilderness and their wanderings in the wilderness. The children of Israel made terrible grave mistakes in that wilderness. And it's for our exhortation. It's for our instruction to not repeat the mistakes of our ancestors, but to instead um, follow what the Lord has said, obey what he has said, not test the Lord, not reject what the Lord has given to us, whether it be the promised land or whether it be the bread and the, and the uh, provisions that he has given to us to meet our needs, that we should never reject all the wonderful things that the Lord has blessed us with because we have seen the result of what it is if we reject those things. Let that not be our testimony the testimony of the generation that died off in the wilderness. But let our testimony instead be the ones of the generation that desire to seek God and his will and what he has led, why he's leading us through the wilderness and because he's desiring to bless us and give us all of these things and that we might see and that we might prophesy before the world and to all people that the kingdom of God is at hand and that Yeshua is Lord and he has given us salvation. What you have to do is you have to ask and you receive it and you receive eternal life and you are an inheritor of the blessings of the kingdom as adopted sons of the living God. What What great news that is. Good news, in fact. That is what our testimony should be and let us learn from the mistakes of old so that we can fulfill that and let that be our destiny, and let us be the fulfillment of prophecy. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this teaching, this instruction, Father. Father, I pray that everyone is blessed on this Sabbath day, encouraged and strengthened, rested and refreshed, Lord, ready to uh, tackle the week as it begins again. Father, um, as we continue to read the word each and every day, may it be the daily bread we need that feeds us spiritually in everything that we do. Father, I pray that you would uh, strengthen us, Father, that you would always lead us away from any temptation, Father. May your spirit inhabit in us so that we might have the words to say and the word of God to quote in the face of the enemy that might be tempting us, Father, just as the Messiah did in the wilderness. For we find ourselves, Lord, in a wilderness of the peoples, in a wilderness of words, in the, in the scattering of the nations that we're in, Father. And Father, may we have your spirit uh, inhabited in us, Lord, to speak your word, to speak your truth, and to reject all temptations of the world. Father, may we be the fulfillment of prophecy, and may you lead us and guide us with your spirit in all things. We love you and we thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. Adonai, be.
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLGive.com. Thank you and Shalom.